Be off and draw your gourds. For slights such as these, Roman Emperor Hadrian, himself an aspiring architect, had Apollodorus of Damascus, the Emperor Trajan's principal architect, and the designer of the famous Pantheon, executed. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Adam Shivitz. And I'm Abhay Singho. This episode lays a scene for a, comp- for a comparison between architectural principles and the ends they serve across the spectrum, where I will be looking at the Maison Carré and I at the Maritime Theatre. We discuss how changing architecture changes with context and time to highlight messaging through monumentality as a mutating yet desirable characteristic in Roman structures. Mark Wilson Jones describes Roman monumentality and architecture as, and I quote, a dynamic interaction between concept and contingency, between the generic and the specific. It evolves progressively as multiple individual decisions are assimilated into the whole. With that in mind, uh, in our podcast today, we will dissect the individual components of monumentality, including location, surrounding, material, spatial experience, and of course, aesthetic significance to elucidate monumental messaging. So to start, for a bit of background, the Maison Carré is a Roman temple in Colonia Nemausus, in the province of Gallia Narbonensis, which is modern Nîmes in Provence, southern France. The temple was dedicated to Emperor Augustus and his grandsons and intended heirs, Gaius and Lucius Caesar. The monument is a hexastyle pseudodipteral Corinthian temple that is nearly textbook Vitruvian and typically Roman. It was built in the Augustan era between 20 and 12 BCE under the patronage of Marcus Vipanius Vipsanius Agrippa. Uh, But its current form is a restoration from the second half of the second century CE. While the area around Nemausus became a Roman territory in 121 BC, with the voluntary surrender of the Gallic uh, people there, its Romanization and transition to Provincia Nostra took full force under Augustus. By his final visit to Gaul in 10 BCE, Romanization was near complete, and Gallia Narbonensis was more Italy than province, in Roman words. Colonia Nemausus was particularly important to Augustus, as there he settled veterans of his Egyptian campaigns. And for Hadrian's Villa, which is where the Maritime Theater is located, it was built in the 2nd century AD after Hadrian's campaigns um, in Egypt and and the far outskirts of the Roman Empire. He had come back to Rome and realized he needed a place to isolate himself and to escape the noise of Rome. So that was the primary purpose for building the sprawling hundreds of acres of buildings out in the Italian countryside. And at that time, Rome had reached the peak of the Pax Romana. There was much wealth, time, and energy at Hadrian's disposal after such a successful campaign that um, he had the time and the energy to delve into his own architectural endeavors instead of being the the great military general that he was before that. So, um, after building this sprawling, con- uh, sprawling um, villa, he spent a lot of time also developing his own architectural principles that broke away from classical Vitruvian style pieces. And that's what we're going to discuss today and how that is in relation with the Maison Carré. 
Unlike Hadrian's Villa, which served as his architectural canvas, the Maison Carré was a public building through and through and served a very different purpose. It not only symbolized Romanization, it was Romanization was its likely purpose, at least to a great extent, especially given the larger development of Colonia Nemausus as a truly Roman city built in part for Roman soldiers. Namely, the temple was meant to foster an appreciation of Roman prosperity and power, and a desire to be part of the former and the need to obey the latter. Additionally, as a temple of the imperial cult to not just Augustus, but also his heirs, the temple was likely aimed to invoke awe, reverence, and loyalty to the imperial family. Indeed, it sought to weave Augustus and his family into the very idea of Rome, as was done uh, with the Horologium. This seemed likely and successful as citizens of Nemausus tore down statues of Tiberius during his exile in favor of Gaius Caesar, and they did not join the later Gallic revolts of 21 CE. Much of this impact and purpose can be attributed to the monumentality of the Maison Carré and how it interplayed with these goals, especially in the eyes of its primary audiences, the local Gallic aristocracy and the common Gauls. In a different way, instead of taking down sculptures, Hadrian was putting up sculptures of what he found inspired by during his travels. The purpose of the, of the Hadrian's Villa and in particular the Maritime Theater was to be an architecturally experimental playground for Hadrian to design many buildings and explore new ideas that he found interesting. As Hadrian was the chief architect, he had the authority to make those decisions when building the Maritime Theater. This led to a divergence from Vitruvian prescription right away. As generally described, there would be a patron, an architect. There would be someone funding with an idea or a, or a mission of what they want to convey, and then an architect that was there to make that come through. But instead, Hadrian took the opposite approach where he found an interesting architectural principle, he built it, and then would spend the time studying that afterwards. Unlike most Roman buildings built for public use, the Maritime Theater was also not built for the public. It went the opposite direction and was certainly a private space for the emperor. Here, he would surround himself with elegant evocations of his travels. By landscaping and superior reproductions, he recreated the sites he most loved and thereby managed in his last years to experience the satisfaction of travel without ever leaving the shores of Italy. Okay, so let's break down these different components of our buildings. So what do you think is the most impactful in the message that the building brings? So you know what they say, the, with architecture and real estate, you always start with location, location, location. So let's start there. The Maison Carré was located in the Forum, itself a project, a contemporaneous project of the Colonia Nemausus. It was located at the south end of a rectangular plaza oriented about negative 22 degrees, as is typical of Roman cities. Behind the temple, was the Nemausus Spring, now known as La Fontaine, that provided water for Nemausus' pre-Roman Celtic inhabitants for centuries before the Pont du Gab aqueduct was built in the, century, in the following century. This spring was the main sacred site for the cult of Deus Nemausus, the Gallic city's patron god, for centuries. The temple was likely placed in, this fo in the forum to signify it and Augustus as an integral part of Roman civic religious, and public life, again weaving him and his family in, into what it means to be Roman, especially at a time when, for many Gauls, many Gauls and Romans were defining what it meant to be Roman 
in the province. The orientation of the forum and the temple uh, ensured that the sun would not obscure the temple and instead illuminate it throughout the day. The forum and, and temple's location near the Nemausu Spring this uh, proved both helpful and also helpful and also co-opted and transferred the pre-existing divinity and secular authority off the off the off the Deus Nemausus cult to Augustus. Just as the Mason Carré was a template for a commonly produced building in ancient Rome, the whole concept of an imperial villa was not a new one by the time Hadrian became emperor. In 2780, the Villa Hovis by an unpopular Emperor Tiberius was built on a secluded island in southern Italy, and reflected his wariness of the political maneuvering in Rome and a lingering fear of assassination. Likewise, Nero's Domus Aurea, built in the sprawling center of Rome, which was Latin for Golden House, shows how much wealth was concentrated on the emperor's personal projects. After his death, this land was returned to the people via the Colosseum, ultimately diminishing and redistributing the legacy Nero had sought to create through the wealth. So how did this theater become an evergreen symbol of Hadrian's imperial prowess without being the overbearing thorn in the side of Romans that these two other villas were? As he was considered one of the five good emperors of Rome, it was important for Hadrian to remain popular, make effective decisions for the empire, and stay in power. Likewise, his travel and education had a profound impact on how he spent his time and what environment he dreamed to live in. This philosopher king's choice to create a profoundly architecturally evocative environment but not impose that in the city center of Rome to as many people as possible showed the individualist impact of architecture on the person. This model is supported by other Roman thought and design, such as colonnades placed around bodies of water to facilitate talking or pondering while absorbing the subline environment. In this way, he invites his audience, his empire, to visit, experience, understand, then awe, rather than simply witness and worship. As the villa was not placed in a city, the building itself did not try to become his legacy, the tribute to himself, or a saber-rattling political statement to Hadrian's accomplishments. Instead, it was rather a toast to the experience, an appreciation of all that he had learned. In terms of the materials for the Maritime Theater, Tivoli had deposits of tons of commonly used Roman materials, boasting important building resources, including travertine, lime, posolana, which is a type of sand, and tufa. Despite access to this plethora of resources, all columns at the Maritime Theater were imported from a quarry off the coast of Italy, indicating that Hadrian was inclined to create a specific, expensive aesthetic that mirrored the wealth of his empire in Rome, rather than simply just create a quick, cheaper, locally sourced version. This would act as a reminder to the prosperity of Pax Romana and justify that the home away from home still had the authority to look and feel like the elite ruling centers of governance in Rome. The general Roman Romanization of the villa was also on par with the construction techniques used in Rome during this time, like the construction of walls through concrete and stone using opus reticulatum. Even though the theater was at a minuscule scale, in comparison to the buildings of Rome, and the engineers could simplify the instructions, the emphasis on mirroring Rome was present and was crucial in the deployment and construction of these materials.
Unlike the exotic materials of Hadrian's villa, all coming together to display the wealth of the empire, the Maison Carré was made entirely of local marble. Specifically, it was made of lenstone, a firm, compact limestone comparable to travertine, with the homogeneous white color from quarries at nearby Cernhek. A visitor would experience such a material as they would in Rome, reducing the experiential distance between Rome and the province. They would see a polished white marble temple shining in the sun, with vivid colors and wall paintings providing contrast. Such heavenly imagery would certainly evoke awe, hearkening to Roman wealth and majesty, and would, it would describe even more divinity to the imperial family. Furthermore, in addition to bringing down costs, using local stone enhanced the temple's monumentality. Local quarries employed more Gallic labor in the province, and not elsewhere, for the monument, at the behest of Roman hegemons, who were effectively wasting these resources, building a temple with pure marble, reinforcing this po the political hierarchy. Locally quarried stone also injected more imperial funds and expertise into the area, showing the locals that they too could share in Roman prosperity as the distance between Rome and Gaul reduced, or in other words, as the, Ga as the, Gallic, as the Gallic people Romanized. Hence, this two-pronged effect resulted in greater solidification of empire and Romanization. Awesome. So now what does come next after construction? Well, it's time to tour, explore, and think about the spatial experience our buildings may have had on their audience at the time. Back at the theater, the theater created an opportunity for invitation for visitors. The open space throughout the atrium paints a collaborative experience for the emperor to engage with his audience and provides an opportunity to branch off with visitors from a variety of audiences because of the angular approach that seems to funnel groups of people to their appropriate rooms. This is thanks to the arc shape and axes dividing the pie of the, of the shape of the island. So once you've permeated the moat, you experience the traditional open presence of a Roman villa. Even though the initial impression of the island may appear to be in seclusion, for example, the circumferential colonnade stands not as an entrance, but as a gate to the island, only allowing insiders or outsiders not invited to simply circumnavigate the moat. However, the portico at the entrance of the island creates an open, unenclosed arch, making an inviting entranceway to the domus. This is an entirely opposite message, utilizing the same exact material and structure and the columns and the colonnades because of the distinction between interior and exterior. The walls surrounding the moat provide even more of a layered onion-like approach to guarding the emperor and his innermost thoughts. Like a skull and brain, which I know much more about after this concussion this quarter, the high walls act like a hopefully non-permeable barrier from the outside. Yet the brain on the inside can dictate actions like the moat bridge dropping that allow people inside. A key aspect of the monumentality of the Maison Carré was in the spatial experience of its visitors. Specifically, a lot of this was in how it shrank individuality, but still managed to create a close, personal and spiritual experience. Standing in front of the temple, the average Roman visitor at five foot six would feel tiny in awe of the sheer size of the approximately 32 by 15 a meter temple, standing 17 meters tall. Approaching, the visitor would confront the nearly three meter tall podium, seeing nothing in front except the imposing top facade 
its shadow, and four meters of steps to the Pernaus. Atop the steps, in the Pernaus, they would be surrounded by rows of massive nine meter tall and almost one meter wide columns under a huge nine meter high ceiling. As they would walk towards the, as, towards the door, towards the door four times their height, it would get darker. Through the sheer scale, the architect shrinks the individual, humbling them, no matter who they are. Combined with the increasing darkness, much like a didyma, this diminished individuality and disorienting surrounding makes the visitor feel as if they are leaving their world and entering the world of the gods. That this was common in Greek and later Roman temple architecture would suggest that Roman visitors and more Romanized Gauls would know that divinity is being signaled. And by similar transference, their ideas of divinity would be applied to the imperial family. Even Gallic visitors who were not well-versed in these Roman ideas and Roman traditions would feel this, spirit, this spiritual uh, spatial experience. The usage of darkness, furthermore, transforms this shrinking, awe-inspiring experience into a more spiritual experience to create a more personal relationship with Divus Augustus. As the visitor got closer to the Kela and the deities, they experienced more darkness, and everything felt closer. The hexastyle pseudodiptera layout would have enhanced this darkness and guided a visitor specifically along this climb, as the walls and engaged columns on the side and back would have allowed no other path. Such closeness was further magnified upon entering the Kela, a likely torchlit room much smaller than would be expected for such a large temple. This contrast between the grandeur of the temple and the compactness of the Kela thus completes the visitor experience as one of a close personal relationship with the imperial gods, suggesting that Augustus was not just meant to be odd, but also seen as an emperor of the people, who had a closeness with each of his subjects. This romanization was also amplified by the contrast between the close, dark spaces of the imperial cult and the earlier Celtic religious tradition centered in larger outdoor spaces. As the imperial cult stepped into some of their roles, it thus gave them a distinctly Roman flavor. To put a cherry on top, let's finish by discussing the aesthetic impact present in our architecture. The organization of the various structures in this motif of a Roman villa with the confines of the circular island space, as well as the Greek stylistic touches like the iconic portico, for example, are telling of Hadrian's own detailed architectural interests. For example, speaking of the portico, the theater, the maritime theater, gets its name from the engraved aquatic creatures and the frieze on top of the portico. This not only speaks to the mythological imagination that the Greeks created and captured in their artistic style, but also speaks to the function of the island itself. And that's what Hadrian wanted to capture and embody and reflect on. A moat typically to be thought of as, a da as dangerous to cross, is in this context, it could also be viewed as an invitation from the emperor to engage in the hydraulic infrastructure present in the island, like the baths on the western side. These baths were connected with the moat, suggesting an extension to the natatio, where parties could swim and look at the frieze, picturing themselves alongside the creatures. Also, the atypical shape of the peripheral walls and colonnades surrounding the buildings along with the ovular atrium at the center, deviates from the aesthetics of most other Roman buildings, like the Maison, where a strict interpretation of rectangular is followed. This is a unique characteristic of the theater in terms of architectural choice, 
and helps to create variations in the traditional Roman motifs. These variations would remain recognizable, but would also stick out and make people wonder why that decision was made. I think this speaks to the traditional Roman design principle of modularity, which comes up at different stages of the vertically integrated construction process, for example, like the independent carving and shipment of columns. The modularity can create many permutations of an aesthetic when different, and something that Hadrian hopes to highlight by creating a Frankenstein reflection of his Greek and Roman roots, alongside his own unfiltered architectural opinions. My take is that the villa was a successfully monumental piece, both the eyes of a guest who may have been visiting for a brief period, but also the emperor who had spent hours meandering through the vast array of buildings. This gives insight into the lives of a sophisticated, popular, and thoughtful emperor who took an eye for both the detail and regard to the message of smaller components of the building while still feeling comfortable tearing down the broad overarching principles of Roman architecture by trying something new with a little dash of old as well. Take it away, Ave. Lastly, while the scale of the temple undoubtedly impressed Roman power and hegemony upon its audience and inspired awe for the imperial family, it was the aesthetic details that qualified the prosperity of Romanness. The temple's venustas showed that Romans could not only build something so big and impressive in such a short time, but also that they had the resources to invest in getting the little details right, especially through the standardized repetition of intricate design or more complete monumentality. For instance, when examining the side of the podium, a visitor would notice intricate molding and would also see the intricate cornices over the Kella doorway, all uniform and in Corinthian style, with the latter featuring natural patterns of acanthus leaves and flowers and eggs and darts. They would see the delicate ac acanthus leaves and volutes on the column capitals. Certainly, they and everyone in the city would notice the extensive and typically Greco-Roman architrave frieze, and cornice on the pediment. They would also notice the visible regularity in the blocks forming the stereobates and kella walls, assuring them of strength. Such decorations signaled the resource wealth, beauty, and majesty of Rome, incentivizing Romanization as a means of prosperity and inclusion. Finally, in the aesthetics and temple order, an interplay between Roman and Gallic tradition may also be noted. Vitruvius notes that a Corinthian temple would be inappropriate for male deities, especially Augustus the Imperator. While this was flouted elsewhere, certainly, in this case, the more naturalistic acanthus-heavy motifs of the Corinthian style may actually have been more aligned with Gallic ideas of naturalistic religion. As such, the Corinthian order may have highlighted similarities between Roman and Gallic culture, and show that Romanization was ultimately flexible and really was a two-way street. Ultimately, with the regularity of the temple and Augustus's emphasis on peace, this may have furthered the goals of Romanization and imperial loyalty by showing the Gallic people that they had a place in the empire and that they ought to remain part of the whole and be rewarded, albeit under the might of the state and the emperor. Ooh, under the might of the state. I like it. Well, thank you all for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe. See you next time in Sicily. <laughs>